This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Today we're going to be talking about uh, hip preservation, especially in an active adult. So the reason I put that adjective active in there is, because, uh, is, is a, something we're going to go into detail about. Uh, but that is something that's very important to this topic, okay? So as with any med school, the first and the most important uh, topic um, is anatomy. So this is a mini med school, so we're still going to start with anatomy here so, so that everyone is on the same page as we go through the lecture. There's a few important structures in terms of the hip joint that everyone should know about. So first of all, the hip is the ball and socket joint uh, in your body, okay? Some people think the hip is the bone on the, on the top uh, of their, uh, um, uh, just below their stomach. That's actually your pelvis. That's your iliac crest. The hip joint itself is um, deep inside, and it's made up of the head of the uh, femur, uh, which is the ball, and then the socket, which is the acetabulum. Okay, so it's uh, a large ball and socket joint, and that allows you to have a lot of range of motion. So instead of being um, like a, a uniplanar joint like your fingers that only allows you to bend in one plane, uh, the ball and socket joint allows you to move in multiple planes like rotation, flexion, and extension. <clears throat> Inside of the, uh, the uh, hip joint, there's a structure called the labrum. Okay, so the labrum is a thick ring of cartilage that uh, surrounds the hip and acts like a gasket. It helps hold everything in place, helps give a good suction seal to stabilize the hip joint, and it can also help protect it uh, during certain types of motions from injury. Okay, so that's a structure we're going to talk a lot more about um, as it is very important. And then uh, the hip is actually lined with something called uh, articular cartilage. So there's different types of cartilage. The labrum is a thick cartilage. That's a type 1 cartilage, which is what you have in your ear, so it's a lot harder. But then the articular cartilage that's lining the joint is actually a soft cartilage. That's type 2 cartilage. Uh, And that's what allows you to move your joints smoothly. So it's like a soft a lubricated cartilage with a very low uh, friction coefficient, which allows you to move without a whole lot of um, problems in each of your joints. Okay, So we've got the two bony structures, the femur and the acetabulum, which are lined by uh, articular cartilage or soft cartilage, and then the labrum that goes around it um, as a gasket. Okay, So that, those are kind of the fundamental principles in terms of the anatomy that we're going to be uh, referencing throughout this talk. Okay. Now, the, the talk is called Hip Preservation. Uh, I am directing the Hip Preservation Center. So what exactly are we preserving here? Okay, So not, not wildlife, not from bounty hunters or, or whatnot, poachers, but what we're actually preserving is uh, articular cartilage. So that's the structure that lines the joints, and this is the important thing that we have to protect. Okay, uh, Articular cartilage is smooth, soft cartilage that covers both sides of any bone inside of a joint. And again, it allows the bones to glide over with minimal friction. Uh, articular cartilage, so this, um, this is a view of inside of the hip, and articular cartilage looks nice and smooth and white. Okay, So when we look inside a joint with the camera, the cartilage is, is pretty white. You don't see a lot of blood. There's not a lot of blood in joints typically. Um, so it should look something like this. Okay. Articular cartilage is 
very smooth and it has no nerve endings in it, okay? And it has very few active cells in it, okay? So when, uh, when a structure has no nerve endings, that means that you can't feel it get damaged, okay? So when you have early damage to your articular cartilage, you just don't feel that, okay? And then because it has actually very few stem cells uh, or progenitor cells, it can't regenerate itself, okay? So this articular cartilage, like on this kind of cross-section here, is this whole layer here. And these are all basically inert cells, essentially uh, not uh, very viable cells that don't have a lot of blood supply. Uh, the bone has good blood supply, but the progenitor cells are all, all the way down here. So when you lose cells up in this layer of your articular cartilage, you don't really feel it, and you wouldn't necessarily feel pain until too much damage is done. Okay. Um, so then... In terms of uh, what are we preserving the hip from? What are we protecting this articular cartilage from? We're protecting it from degeneration and destruction, okay? And that's what we call arthritis of your joint, okay? So arthritis uh, is cartilage degeneration slash destruction, and that occurs when the loss of cartilage uh, results in bone-on-bone -bone contact inside of your joints. So in order for your joints to move smoothly, it needs to be layered by lubrication from joint fluid, as well as from the soft cartilage. If that soft cartilage gets damaged or worn away, then what's exposed underneath it is bone. And bone doesn't move across bone very well, okay? And that, that causes a lot of pain, okay? So that's what arthritis is. And then in terms of arthritis, um, osteoarthritis is what we typically refer to when we talk about arthritis. And osteoarthritis is a very broad term, and it means destruction of articular cartilage that results in pain, deformity, or disability. So when someone has osteoarthritis, uh, that's basically what that means. Osteoarthritis is caused by multiple things. There's a lot of things that can cause it. And the most common causes uh, are multifactorial, which means there's not one single thing that causes it. The most common forms of osteoarthritis from, are from a combination of multiple things that go on in a person's life. Number one is age, okay? Uh, babies, toddlers, young kids, their cartilage is almost always perfect if there's no dramatic event. Uh, however, over time, as we get older, um, the cartilage tends to break down and, and degenerate, okay? There's not a lot of cells in there, so over time, as you wear down the cartilage, it's hard for it to come back and regenerate. Another thing is weight. So there's been strong associations uh, found between patients who are overweight and early joint breakdown. Um, and also, uh, genetics is also a strong component. So a lot of people may have uh, a hereditary gene that causes um, early arthritis in their joints. So if their parents had replacements of their joints, the kids may have a higher risk factor for that uh, than other people. And then also, uh, uh, one question mark is activity level slash overuse. We're not sure exactly how that plays into effect with uh, arthritis, uh, but there is a component where you can uh, have overuse injuries that lead to early arthritis. But those, those things are some of the most common things that factor into why people get degeneration. Okay? Um, and then there's some things that are more specific specific reasons why people get cartilage destruction. That's not just age or weight or activity level. And those are inflammatory arthritis, which we'll talk about. That's like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, some of those genetic conditions. Post-traumatic arthritis, so after you have some type of injury or fracture. And then something called avascular necrosis or also called osteonecrosis, which is a lack of blood supply going to the, to the femur. 
Okay, so we're going to talk about each of those causes. Uh, but just to dive in a little bit more, osteoarthritis. So when we look at it under the microscope, normal cartilage looks like this. It's a nice pink layer. And then uh, uh, as it degenerates, this is what we start to see. So on the left here, you see uh, that smooth layer start to break down and get thinner. And then here, a grade two injury, it starts to really break down. You still have a cartilage layer before you get to the bone, but it's getting thinner. And then uh, later on, the cartilage just gets destroyed, and there's barely any of it until you get to bone. And then when we look at it, uh, what it looks like clinically is something like this. So on the left there, you can see the smooth white cartilage uh, around the sides there. And then you have a big pothole of missing cartilage. So this is from some kind of focal injury, uh, so focal uh, loss of cartilage over that area. And then this one, instead of seeing uh, nice white smooth cartilage lining the joint here, you just see bone and you see bone on that side. So this is bone on bone arthritis where it's bone touching bone. Okay, all the cartilage has been worn through on the picture on the right. And then when we look at x-rays, it's really easy to diagnose arthritis on x-rays. Uh, for, for the hip, the first thing we look at is the joint space. So the joint space is essentially uh, uh, the distance between the socket and the femur. And then how much space there is is a sign of how much cartilage you have left. Because we can't actually see cartilage on x-rays, we can only see more solid structures like bone. We, we derive how much cartilage you have by seeing how much space is between the bones. Okay. So on a normal joint space, uh, you can see right there, there's, there's, one, uh, there's a socket and then there's a femur. However, here, when you have arthritis, there's no space and pretty much the bones uh, uh, from the femur has melted into the bone from the socket and it's kind of uh, touching there, bone on bone. So that's pretty severe arthritis. Okay. And this is something uh, we pick up on x-rays. Uh, that's probably the first thing we do to look for arthritis is get some x-rays. And then end-stage arthritis, so that occurs when it's complete loss of articular cartilage. So you can have different stages, like that slide I show you, where it's some mild loss, medium loss, high loss. But when we call it end-stage, that means there's just no arthritis left, and it's just bone touching bone in the joint. And when you have end-stage arthritis, you will have a loss of your range of motion because you won't be able to move the joint around. So it essentially gets stuck onto itself from bone rubbing on bone. And most of the time, you'll have significant pain, and especially when you uh, put weight on it. So the hip is a weight-bearing joint, so when you load it and walk on it, it's going to cause pain when, when you have arthritis. Okay. In terms of uh, treatment for arthritis, so currently the uh, trillion-dollar question is how can we regrow or regenerate cartilage, and, and arthritis is one of the leading causes of musculoskeletal uh, uh, injury or problems in the U.S., and a lot of people around the country are working very hard uh, to um, try to find ways of regenerating cartilage, but we really don't have any method of doing that right now. Okay, so currently when you have end-stage arthritis, when it's bone-on-bone, bone, the only thing that really works is uh, hip replacement surgery. Okay, so that's like this x-ray shows. We basically remove the, uh, the uh, arthritic joint and put in a prosthetic joint. So it's a metal, uh, metal uh, uh, hip, usually a plastic liner, and then um, a metal socket as well. 
So basically, we put in a prosthetic joint. But uh, and this this is actually some a surgery that works very well. It was termed as uh, surgery at the century a few decades ago because of how successful it was uh, in terms of relieving patient pain and getting them back to activities. As you can imagine, when you have bone-on-bone arthritis, uh, quality of life is quite poor. And then once you have a new hip. The range of motion is much better, pain is gone, and you can really return to quite a lot of uh, activities from it. The problem here is that we don't want to do a hip replacement on patients that are too young. Okay, So just like your normal joints, a hip replacement will, will wear down over time. And typically, we tell patients uh, the average lifespan of a hip replacement joint is roughly 15 years, depending on how much activities you're doing and what kind of activities you're doing on it. So if you are in your 60s or 70s, getting a hip replacement you, it would be, would, uh, you'd be expected to last a lifetime because at that point, you're probably not doing high-level activities, and you can expect it to last 30-plus years. Okay? If you're 30 years old and you get a hip replacement, uh, there's almost no chance that that's going to last through that pa- the rest of that patient's life. And the problem is if you have to revise a hip replacement, if your hip replacement wears down, you have to take it out and put another one in, that surgery is me- exponentially harder to do with exponentially higher rates of complications for the patient. So it's, not, it's a much less safe surgery than doing a primary hip replacement. Uh, so that's where I'll talk more about preserving the hip, especially in uh, younger patients uh, later on, and how we can try to do that. Okay. Now, to go into some of those specific reasons for uh, why we get arthritis. So the most common ones for osteoarthritis, age, uh, activity level, those are just kind of uh, normal uh, uh, normal uh, characteristics that, that are not necessarily preventable or modifiable for, for a lot of people. Uh, weight is one thing that could be modifiable, but most of those other ones are not. Um, uh, but in terms of these more specific ones, there are certain things that we can do to target these conditions. Uh, uh, it's a much lower uh, percentage of the uh, arthritis conditions that come from these, uh, but there are certain things we want to do. So first of all, inflammatory arthritis. This is very common in patients over age 35. Females more common than males. So this is what hap- This is a uh, a autoimmune disease, which means your body's immune system is overactive and attacks its healthy cells. Uh, and when that happens, these cells usually kind of clump into joints, and it can cause an inflammatory reaction. So inflammation in your joints that uh, happen to also break down the cartilage in the joints. So um, uh, these can also have other adverse effects on your organs and your skin, like your eyes and your heart, if they're not well controlled. So the most common things that causes are rheumatoid arthritis and uh, lupus, okay? And these are uh, kind of genetic conditions. There's certain uh, genetic factors that make patients more prone to these. Uh, and then there is a hereditary component. So if family members have rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or any autoimmune disease, this is something you want to be very cognizant of to kind of look out for joint pain. Most of these patients will have pain in more than one joint. The hip is a very common place for it to occur, but usually these patients will also have pain in their wrists, fingers, uh, ankles, knees, and and shoulders even. So it's a uh, multi-joint injury, okay? Because it's coming from your bloodstream, uh, it's going to be kind of diffuse usually. The good news about this uh, inflammatory arthritis is that it can be treated with medical medications. Uh, So for a really bad flare-up, you can start with oral steroids like a a prednisone or or, um, 
um, or Medrol dose pack to kind of calm down the pain from it. And then uh, there's also new immunomodulating drugs, so uh, medications that try to tone down the overactivity of your immune system so that it can control these flare-ups. So you'll, you'll guys, you guys, I'm sure, will have seen a lot of commercials for the, this on TV, like Embril and all this stuff that, people, that the companies are coming out of. They actually work very well for things like rheumatoid arthritis. And uh, the most important thing about this is diagnosing it early. So people in their mid, mid 30s and 40s who have really severe joint pain without any type of specific injury, these are the people you want to get checked out. We can diagnose these uh, diseases through kind of blood draws and testing for specific things in your blood. And then if you're on the right medications, it could prevent uh, uh, bone, uh, sorry, cartilage loss uh, and destruction. So uh, one, that's one way to prevent cartilage loss when you know what's causing it. So, so uh, that's one thing uh, that we can do to uh, work on that. Another thing uh, that can cause early arthritis is post-traumatic arthritis. So this will usually be from a bad injury, car accident, bite, uh, uh, bicycle injury, uh, hit by a car, that kind of thing, where you actually break a bone. So when we're talking about the hip itself, uh, a post-traumatic uh, um, uh, arthritis is usually from fractures of the femur, uh, usually the femoral neck. So in this picture, you can see um, here this, this hip has been fractured. So this is the normal hip. And then there's a fracture right through the neck here. Uh, and then this patient went on to have surgery where we pinned, uh, pinned the neck and stabilized it, but they still went on to have arthritis uh, in the hip joint. And that's because of the trauma itself from that initial injury uh, and, and damage to the cartilage. So uh, for this one, things like this, you want to just try to be careful about high-impact injuries, of course, okay? Um, and then also uh, timely surgical treatment. So reducing these fractures and uh, stabilizing them may lower the chances of having uh, uh, post-traumatic arthritis. Now, in some cases, even if you do a nice job of fixing the fracture, uh, you can still go on to have arthritis in the hip. Like in this picture here, this, this patient's fracture has been uh, pinned, and the fracture itself has, has nicely healed, which is back in this area. But you see that the head is, is still kind of uh, collapsed and injured, okay? Especially on the side here, you can see these bone spurs that have grown out as an early sign of arthritis. So what happened here is something called uh, avascular necrosis of the hip. We also call it osteonecrosis. And what that is, is that there's been a loss of blood supply to the head of the femur. So the head of the femur is a bone and it gets all of its blood supply coming from out here and it goes in towards the center of it. If something was to disrupt that blood supply, then that, that, the head of the femur can die. So if the bone dies, which is what osteonecrosis means, then it will start to uh, cave in and break down. And then as a result of that, that, that can also cause arthritis. So this is something, this is a condition that usually happens more in younger patients, and there's certain things that cause it. So number one is trauma. So fracture of the femoral neck uh, has a high rate of uh, causing avascular necrosis just because you're interrupting the blood supply when you have that fracture. Certain medications like steroids for a long time 
chemotherapy, those can all cause uh, constriction of your blood vessels uh, and, and cause uh, osteonecrosis of the head. This, this is one area, there's not a lot of good blood supply to it, so it's very sensitive to any loss of blood from any kind of medications that alter that. So that's why that area becomes injured very uh, rapidly. Also, other things like HIV and hep C, we don't know exactly why that relationship is, but people with those diseases do have a higher uh, risk of getting avascular necrosis of the hip. And then one other very common one is alcohol abuse. So severe or high alcohol intake is associated with avascular necrosis of the hip. And then a certain percentage of these are idiopathic, which means we don't know uh, why patients get these. Okay? But that's something that happens, that, that happens more in younger patients. Now, for this, uh, for this injury, if we catch it early enough, so if we see that there's some uh, injury to the head of the femur, uh, we can potentially uh, get, uh, treat it before the femur collapses. So if the femur still has a good shape before it caves in, then we can do something called core decompression, where we drill little holes into uh, the head of the femur to help increase the blood supply to that area and also to decompress some of, all, some of that pressure that's accrued from those dead cells. And then sometimes you could put bone graft in there to um, kind of pack it and reinforce it. If we get to it early enough, it has been reported to have up to a 70% success rate for preserving the hip. Okay? The problem is most of the time, by the time patients see us, there's a good chance there's already some collapse, and then doing this surgery uh, is not quite as successful as 70%. Okay? Uh, and then uh, like on this uh, x-ray here, when they've collapsed, uh, then the best thing to do is a replacement surgery at that point, okay? Because uh, drilling holes will, will, won't make this any better because it's already started that process. It's a little too far down the road, okay? So outside of those kind of specific uh, conditions that cause arthritis, uh, what, what are, who are the patients that we can target for hip preservation? Which are the patients that... Uh, will usually do best with these interventions. So arthritis typically develops in the older, patient, older population. So patients over 55 years old uh, are, are more likely to have um, uh, more arthritis. Now, is it possible to prevent arthritis from occurring in certain high-risk individuals? For example, in young patients who are very, very physically active. So that depends. So, so first... Uh, what are the causes for early arthritis? Okay, so for patients that get arthritis under the age of 50, uh, about almost 10% of them are due to a post-traumatic injury, like those x-rays I showed you where they had a car accident or, or some kind of high-impact high trauma. That's likely not preventable because some of those are just um, uh, uh, accidents, okay? Uh, another 30% are due to avascular necrosis, or depending on why you have that. Certain things may be mod modifiable, like alcohol abuse and certain things like that. But other things may be unavoidable. And then the rest of the patients, the last 50% or, or, uh, or so of the ones aged less than 50 who develop arthritis, those are actually from structural abnormalities of the hip itself. So people are born with different shapes to their hips, and certain shapes uh, of your hip can predispose people to get early arthritis or early cartilage damage. Okay? So the two most common abnormal shapes uh, are something called hip dysplasia, which we'll talk about in a second, and femoral acetabular impingement. Okay? 
So let's look at those. So hip preservation in the young active population, the two most common major structural abnormalities of the hip are dysplasia or FAI. FAI stands for femoral acetabular display, uh, impingement. And these conditions can uh, lead to high, high risk of having early arthritis. Uh, in the general population, it's a lot more common for people to have FAI or hip impingement than they are to have hip dysplasia. Hip dysplasia can be anywhere from 1% to 5% of the population, but FAI can be anywhere from up to 30% of the population. It has some signs of this. Okay. And again, in these young patients who develop some early arthritis, we want to try to avoid doing a hip replacement for as long as possible to uh, prevent the risk of needing revision of that hip replacement. Okay. So, so, and we don't have any way of replacing dam uh, cartilage that's been damaged. So the number one thing we want to target is prevention of any worsening cartilage damage. So prevention is the key here. So uh, the rest of the talk, we're going to talk focus on these two uh, kind of injury patterns. The first one we're going to talk about is hip dysplasia. So hip dysplasia is a congenital structural abnormality of the hip, which means you're born with it. So uh, a lot of babies, uh, uh, when they're born, can have some dysplasia of the hip, and that means that the socket is not covering the head of the femur enough. Okay, so uh, like we said on the first slide, the hip is a ball and a socket joint. If the socket is too shallow, then there's not enough coverage, okay? And that's not a good thing. So some uh, babies are born, uh, or some infants are born uh, with uh, so much dysplasia that you can actually test it and dislocate the hip. So when you have newborns, all the, all the doctors, all the pediatricians right after they're born will do a hip, uh, hip check. And there's a couple of tests that we can check to see how stable the hips are. If we catch hip dysplasia early enough in an infant uh, or in, um, uh, even in some toddlers young enough, you can brace them with, some, uh, with the harness, and that can help induce the socket to grow back uh, more normally. So this is something that needs early diagnosis. Uh, the, uh, it's associated with... Um, a breech delivery, so if the, pa if the baby, if the infant comes out backwards instead of head first, feet first, that has a higher risk of having hip dysplasia and any family history of hip dysplasia. So if, uh, if the parents, grandparents have any history of having hip dysplasia, the infant, uh, when they're born, are more likely to have that as well. Uh, uh, if it's a severe form, it can be diagnosed right, right away in the hospital in the newborn nursery. However, most people have more milder asymptomatic forms where there's just less coverage, but you don't really feel that until much later on in life. You wouldn't know until it started to bother you. And, and it's still covered enough where it, uh, all the tests are normal at first, but then what happens is over time it breaks down. So here's an x-ray of something like that. Now, uh, dysplasia here, so you can see on the right one here, that socket is barely covering half of the head, head there. So when we draw the angles to look at it, uh, it's a very uh, shallow uh, coverage of the head. So uh, there's a few different angles that we use to measure this, but uh, just eyeballing it, the end of the socket should really reach out a little bit farther to cover the whole head. So, so it should actually sit like a roof over the head of the femur. Hip dysplasia is a lot more common in females than males, so it's almost 85% females and 15% males. Okay, So those are also, that's another risk factor for it. 
And then uh, hip dysplasia has a very high progression to early arthritis. So you can imagine if the hip is not covered, it's an unstable joint. So when you're moving around and doing things, there's too much movement in the joint and that can cause breakdown of the labrum and too much force, shear forces across the cartilage. And then just the abnormal loading of the joint will cause early breakdown. So that's why hip dysplasia has a very high uh, progression risk to uh, early arthritis. Now for patients that have hip dysplasia, how do we treat it? So in infants, if it's really bad, you can brace them and harness them. In adults, uh, it's too late for any kind of bracing because once your skeleton has fused after you're done growing, uh, you really have to change the bone to correct hip dysplasia. Okay, So the surgical treatment for hip dysplasia is something called a periacetabular osteotomy. So what that means is we cut the bone and we rotate the bone of the socket to cover the head more. Okay, so as you can see here on the left, that's uh, a dysplastic hip. The angle here is only 11 degrees when it should be more like 25 degrees when we use this measurement. And then what the surgeon did here is they made a cut across the uh, pelvis here, and then they rotated the socket to cover more of the head. So now you can see this goes out uh, to the edge here, and then they, they pin the socket in place there with, with multiple screws. Okay. So this, as you can imagine, is a pretty big surgery. It's a, it's a full incision and it's a long rehab because you really have to, you can't really put weight on this until the bone heals. Uh, you're in the hospital for a few days. You're on crutches for at least six weeks, sometimes more. Uh, and then uh, much longer before you're getting back to normal activities for something like this. Okay. And then this, this surgery also has a high risk of complications because it's such an invasive procedure. Some of the studies that recently came out show that uh, for uh, uh, a group of surgeons who did a lot of these surgeries, almost half of their patients, 43% of their patients, still had a complication after the surgery. And 10% of those complications were major complications. So it's not just, you know, a little bit of pain, a little bit of drainage at the surgery site. It's a major one, like a major infection, a major nerve injury, or need to have a second surgery to fix it. So, so this is a big surgery uh, for hip dysplasia um, with, with high risk, okay? Um, and then the survivorship of this, which is what we're really interested in, does doing this surgery help preserve the hip for longer? Uh, yes and no. So for the first 10 years, it's actually pretty good. So if you're doing the surgery, uh, there's only, uh, and 10 years later, 86% of the people who had a PAO or a periacetabular osteotomy uh, basically um, did not have to have a hip replacement. Survivorship means if you preserve the joint or not. Uh, so 14% of the people within 10 years went on to have a hip replacement surgery after that. So for us, that's actually a pretty good number, preserving 85% for 10 years. Now, when you go farther out, farther out to 20 years, only 60% of them survive. So 40% of the hips by 20 years out of this group of 300 hips needed to have a hip replacement. Okay. So, and the major risk factor that they saw was older age. So if you're over 50, there is a 63% chance of needing a hip replacement within 10 years of this surgery, okay? So you can make the argument for patients that are older, over 50, you may, it may not be um, uh, effective to do the PAO. You may want to just wait and do the hip replacement altogether and avoid a big surgery with a high complication risk and then ultimately still need to do one, uh, a hip replacement later on.
okay. So this is a tough, this is a tough um, condition because hip dysplasia uh, and early arthritis in the adult, we don't really have any great answers for right now because it's such a hard condition to change the structure of it. Uh, this is something that we're doing a lot of research on, and we need further studies to investigate how different treatments for dys dysplasia can uh, preserve the native cartilage and also uh, lower the complication rates from this surgery. Okay. Now, the other major uh, contributor or risk factor for early arthritis at the hip is something called femoral acetabular impingement, or FAI, okay? This is much more common in the general population. It could be anywhere from 15 to 30%. And basically, this is an abnormal uh, bony uh, anatomy that develops during skeletal development. So you're not born with this. So when you're born as an infant, you don't have FAI. This is something that occurs as you, you skeletally mature. So as your growth plates fuse, uh, it could take a different shape than it's supposed to. And there's two main forms of it. So one is called uh, pincer. So this is where the socket is overcovered. So with hip dysplasia, there's not enough coverage uh, of your femur with the socket. With the pincer FAI, there's too much. The socket is too deep and it's too big and, and it's gripping the head too tightly. Okay. Uh, and then the other form of it is called the cam, which means that the head of the femur is not a perfect sphere. So you can see in this diagram, this red spot, so there's actually a bone spur or an abnormal growth uh, of extra bone uh, on the head-neck junction of the femur, so right where the neck is. So we, when I talk to patients about this, it's like if you have a square peg inside of a round hole. So the square peg doesn't fit, and then those edges, when you turn and rotate it, are going to rub against the, the round hole. So that's, that's essentially what uh, FAI is, or femoral acetabular impingement is. So you can imagine when you have extra bone formation uh, in the hip joint, um, you can have um, increased friction inside of the hip, and that can lead to damage of certain structures. Okay? So the first one that gets damaged is the hip labrum. Okay, so the labrum, uh, just to review, is that thick ring of protective hard cartilage and maintains the suction seal of the hip and helps with stability. And when you have FAI, it's very common to have a tear in the labrum because that's the first thing that gets damaged uh, from all the chronic rubbing. Okay, so when you have FAI, pretty much every time you flex the hip, so when you're sitting down for a long time or you're running or doing something like that, that extra bone spur rubs against the cartilage and against the labrum and causes micro damage to it. So over 90% of patients with FAI are found to have either labral or cartilage damage. If they're symptomatic, they actually have pain from it. And then when you have labral tears, it can cause pain. It can also cause mechanical symptoms like rubbing, catching, clicking, and locking. But uh, some labral tears can, can actually be symptomatic before the cartilage. So the cartilage doesn't have nerve endings. On the outside of the labrum, there, there is a little bit more uh, nerve fibers. So you can have pain in the labrum area, uh, but not necessarily feel any cartilage damage. So here's an MRI here on the top of what a labral tear looks like. So this little triangle here, and there's this white line right between where that triangle, which is the labrum, is supposed to touch the bone. So that's a tear. And then this is a picture of surgery when I probe it and the labrum lifts off and this, this is cartilage right underneath it that's torn and flapped over. Okay, So FAI is very common and it starts to beat up cartilage 
at a very young age, okay? So this is a surgery on one of my 18-year-old patients. So this patient's only 18. And then I'm probing uh, her labrum and her cartilage. So the labrum's torn, and it's, uh, you can lift it right off the, the bone there. And then that cartilage below is frayed and torn as well. So someone who's only 18 has already had labral tear and cartilage injury. So uh, the thing with FAI is uh, it's a, um, something that's really come about a lot more commonly uh, in, in, in more recent times, okay? So uh, depending on uh, which uh, study you're reading, anywhere from 15 to 30% of the population can have FAI. And because it's a bony uh, a developmental abnormality, uh, most, most of the time, if you have it on one side, you'll have it on the other side, okay? But you don't always have symptoms on both sides, okay? But almost 80% of people will have bilateral radiographic signs of it. But only 25% of people actually develop symptoms on both sides and need to have surgery on both sides. So we're a little bit leg dominant, just like we are hand dominant. So, so that's why some people, you, you can have uh, certain uh, uh, symptoms in one hip and not the other. And we, uh, we call it a disease of the modern humans. So they did a nice study looking at some uh, cadaver bones from uh, prehistoric times, um, looking at uh, basically early Neanderthals. And when they measure the alpha angle, which is an indicator of how much uh, bony abnormality or cam uh, deformity humans have. In the early uh, Heyman Todd collection period, uh, th there's much, much lower uh, uh, alpha angle. So people, uh, Neanderthals in the early days, didn't have this problem. So it's a luxury that we as modern humans have to deal with. Uh, so for some reason, people are developing these kind of uh, abnormalities a lot more often. Okay, And part of that reason is because of how much sports we're doing. Okay, So we found a really high association with FAI and, and high-level athletes. Okay, So they did a study looking at x-rays of players at the NFL Combine, which is where all the college athletes uh, try out uh, to be in the NFL, and 90% of those players had at least one sign of FAI on their x-rays. Okay? And then if you look at youth hockey players, so looking at Colorado uh, youth hockey players that are pretty elite, 75% uh, of them had this bony deformity on MRI. And then soccer is the other sport. So uh, football, hockey, and soccer. In terms of high-level soccer players, 72% of males and 50% of females in uh, high-level U.S. soccer teams, like the MLS or U.S. national team, had radiographic evidence of FAI. And then uh, because of this, we started looking a little bit more at why that is. And we started to follow some of these young uh, athletes through, uh, through their maturation. So they did a study looking at uh, pre-professional soccer players in the Netherlands. So these are all young players who, who get recruited to be on these uh, early pro teams at an early age of 12. And then they're, they're doing nothing but soccer, a little bit of schooling and everything. But they're essentially pros or recruited to, to, to prime to be uh, professional players as they grow up. So when they start at age 12, they took x-rays. And 2% of them had uh, FAI or a CAM lesion. And then two years later, they took x-rays and 18% of them had a CAM lesion. So other similar studies have shown this trend in youth-level basketball and hockey players. So it leads us to kind of hypothesize that it has a lot to do with how much uh, repetitive uh, overuse you're putting on your hips 
as your skeleton maturing. So between those ages of 12 to 18, when, when, um, when the young patients hit their growth spurt, if you're doing something to injure your growth plate, that's why these abnormal bone growths occur. Okay? So that's why these high-level athletes that have been running and doing drills and playing on year-around year uh, teams, uh, not just their high school but club teams and everything, these are the patients that get a lot of this type of injury in their hips. And then just to uh, reiterate, going back earlier, the reason this is important is that for patients who are younger than 50 years old, uh, FAI is a major cause of arthritis. So you'll see a lot of these professional athletes do great and then retire in their early 30s and then get hip replacements right away sometimes. Okay, So um, Andy Murray recently had to retire from tennis because... Uh, he had uh, pretty bad arthritis in his hips and almost uh, right around the prime of his career. Okay. Now, how can you diagnose this? So uh, a lot of our athletes are going to play through groin strains and hip pain and whatnot. So some of the things that usually are signs of FAI are pain with hip flexion. So that means bending your knee up towards your chest. So that usually uh, causes a lot of pain. Pain with prolonged sitting. So it's one thing where you have pain if you strain the muscle and then you're trying to use it and overuse it. But if you're just sitting there all day and it hurts you a lot, that's, that's, not a, uh, that's a problem. So that's not a muscle injury. That's usually uh, an articular cartilage uh, or a hip uh, uh, injury. And then a lot of times people will feel pain in the front of their hips, but also sometimes they'll show me it's like a C-shaped band where it's in the front and goes around the back. So they, just like this uh, diagram here, they'll reach from the front, so the pain will go from here and go all the way through the hip to the back. Okay. And then uh, a lot of times people will say when they just stand up from a sitting position, it'll hurt, a, it'll hurt a lot, especially the first few steps, they'll start limping. And then, of course, pain with sports, running, and, and impact type of activities with this. Okay. Uh, in terms of the physical exam, so we've measured different things. We've looked at how people walk when they have this injury, and there's different gait patterns to it. With FAI, they usually don't extend the hip behind them as much. Okay, uh, And then the range of motion, when we check the range of motion, uh, FAI, they usually lose internal rotation, which is bringing the knee in towards the center. Okay, But if they have arthritis, then you have a global loss of range of motion. So every range is, is, is bad. But with FAI, it's really more flexing it up and then turning it in that that starts to be more problematic uh, and a lot of my patients that have this didn't really think they had problems they the most common thing i hear is oh i've always had tight hips growing up and i thought that was normal so uh, if your hips are really tight and you've all you've had uh difficulty with range of motions that's not always normal okay and then when we check them clinically, uh, we, we do a test called the flexion, adduction, and internal rotation test. So just like uh, what our um, uh, clinician is demonstrating here, you flex the knee up and turn it in. And usually this will reproduce a lot of pain in the groin or in the deep in the hip area. Okay. So, uh, and then cartilage and labral injury prevention. So in terms of how do we prevent this type of de deformity from causing injury, the first uh, step to prevention of irreversible damage is a timely diagnosis. So we need to be able to catch this early and uh, before it does too much damage. Because once the cartilage is gone, we can't put that back together. And the first thing we see is early cartilage delamination, uh, which, is, which means the cartilage is coming off the bone and it's loose from the bone, but you don't see it frayed or beat up yet. 
uh, and that's typically very hard to do uh, to see on MRI. But here at UCSF, we did some research uh, last two years ago now, working with our radiology group to use some advanced imaging sequences to be able to, to detect this injury pattern uh, early on before normal MRI can detect it. Okay, so we're uh, uh, using this method to try to uh, do diagnostic tests on our patients who may be at risk for having early uh, damage that, that may not be uh, found on an MRI. Okay. And then once we detect this injury, uh, what do we do? Okay, so early detection uh, allows for early treatment. Okay, so the first thing we do for treatment of this is conservative treatment. Uh, So first, it's activity modification. So if you're doing something, so my patient tells me every time I do a deep squat with 150 pounds on my back, it hurts my hips. Hey, don't do that. So try not to do that activity first and foremost. Okay, and then there's some patients that say, "No, I'm not changing my activity mod, uh, my activity level. I'm going to uh, lift heavy weights. I'm going to run more than I should, and and do everything." Um, then you got to think about other ways of helping them. Okay, so first thing is anti-inflammatory medication. So over-the-counter anti-inflammatory, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, which stand for NSAIDs, like ibuprofen, uh, which is like Motrin or Advil, or naproxen, which is a leave. These are good medications for inflammatory joint pain, okay? So these work better than Tylenol for joint pain uh, because it really gets down to the mechanism uh, of why you have pain. So when you have pain from these injuries, it's because of all the grinding and all the, uh, all the inflammatory markers that it creates by beating up that cartilage, and that's what you feel. You don't actually feel the cartilage itself, but you feel the inflammation generated from the injury, okay? So for people that have some injury and really need to compete through something, uh, a lot of ibuprofen um, to get them through uh, that competition level. Icing for these joint injuries are better than heat. People always ask me, ice or heat? For joint pain, like hip pain, ice is better than heat. Heat is better for muscle pain and muscle aches, but joints, uh, ice is better, okay? And then we always do physical therapy for our patients. So people with uh, uh, FAI, we always get them in to see a physical therapist first because there's certain things that the physical therapy can do to help correct their mechanics. So you have a structural problem in your hip, but there's different uh, kinematic things that you can do to avoid impingement, okay? So if you strengthen the glute muscles up, that can uh, exter- help externally rotate the hip and take some of that impingement lesion out of, out of play. So when you strengthen the core muscles, you offload the amount of force you actually put on your hip joints. So the stronger your muscles are around your pelvis, around your core, around your hip, the less load you're actually putting on your hips. So that helps alleviate some of that pressure. And you can work on range of motion gently. To, if they have tight joints, try to stretch out the soft tissues, which may potentially help. And then you can also stretch out the hip flexor muscle, which is called the iliopsoas. That's the one that's usually responsible for uh, snapping of the hips. A lot of people have internal snapping or popping in their hip. That's usually because the hip flexor or the iliopsoas is draped across their joint, and it's a little tight, and it snaps over it. So stretching that out can actually alleviate some of the pressure uh, that may actually be making any labral tears worse. So if you don't have a, a flexor tendon on the outside pushing down on the labrum, that's also getting pushed up by the cam lesion. Uh, that may help with some of your symptoms. Okay. So we usually have our patients that come in with this do physical therapy. Um, And then there's also an option for injections, 
Okay, so typically when we inject joints, cortisone is the thing we usually uh, give, which is a steroid, and it's an anti-inflammatory for the hip because it's such a deep joint. We can't just inject it in the office. So people come in and ask for injection. If I were to just try to inject your hip in the office, I would miss probably 90% of the time. It would just go somewhere it's not supposed to go. Uh, so we always need something imaging to help guide this. So we, you can do it under x-ray or you could do it under ultrasound. Here at UCSF, we have our uh, radiologists who specialize in this do it for us. So you can use an ultrasound and make sure that needle is right in the hip joint, uh, right, right in where it needs to be. And cortisone uh, works very well for relieving pain. The question mark is how long does it last for? Because it's an anti-inflammatory, um, and as you can tell, the injection is not going to change the structure of your hip. If you have a tear, it's not going to heal the tear for you. So uh, usually your symptoms come back. Uh, but p- sometimes patients can have pretty long improvement anywhere from as little as two weeks to two months. I've seen patients have it last for quite a few months, three, four, five months sometimes, and have good relief from their pain, okay? And if you're using it wisely, which is one injection every three to four months at most, there's not a lot of side effects from that. So you you can have too much steroid in your system if you're injecting every other week or something like that, uh, which we, we don't uh, allow patients to do. But uh, if you're doing it wisely in an incremental fashion, it's pretty safe. Okay. So this is a good temporizing uh, procedure for helping pain. For people that don't have other options besides this, it can usually uh, help them a lot with their symptoms as well. Uh, what, what you hear, what a lot of uh, patients hear, and I get a lot of questions about this, are alternative injections. Okay, So now it's all over uh, billboards, newspapers, radios, and TV commercials, things like PRP and stem cells. Uh, so these are heavily advertised and marketed as uh, new potential treatment for joint diseases and joint injuries. Okay, So what, what is that exactly? So PRP is platelet-rich plasma. So what that is, is you draw a patient's blood, put it in a centrifuge, and you spin it, spin it, spin it, and then all the healing factors from the blood get concentrated. So then you remove all the other stuff that you don't need, and then you put that concentrated healing, uh, uh, those healing factors, and then you inject it into areas that potentially need healing, Okay. So for things like tendonitis, where you have chronic inflammation uh, uh, of the tendon, it's been shown to work pretty well. So for people that have tennis elbow, which is tendonitis uh, of the lateral epicondyle, it's actually been shown to work pretty well. And then for uh, some people with patellar tendonitis in their knee, PRP has been shown to work pretty well. So you have a few early studies showing some promising results. And these are still relatively small studies. And then people go crazy with it. So then doctors say, hey, we're going to inject your hip with it. We're going to inject your shoulder with it. We're going to inject anything that causes pain with it without really any evidence to support that as a treatment. Okay, So that's why PRP, for the most part, is not covered by insurance plans. And if you go to a clinic that does it, you're going to be paying cash for this. Okay. Um, which um, for some things, hey, it's worth it. It actually does help. But for other things, it's completely experimental. Uh, and I don't, I don't necessarily recommend doing this for my patients, especially for areas where there's no evidence for it. Okay. Um, and then the other thing uh, is something called stem cells. So people love to talk about stem cells. Hey, why can't you take some of my stem cells and inject it into a damaged joint? And that'll heal everything, right? 
not always. Okay, so first of all, they used they they have been doing something called allogenic stem cells, which is stem cells from another person, not yourself. And what they would do is take that from placental tissue. Okay, so placenta after uh, an infant's born has a lot of stem cells in it. You don't know who it's from. You don't know how it's sterilized, but companies are packaging that and selling it to people, and certain clinics are injecting it for people at at the low cost of something like ten thousand dollars, something like that. I'm not quite sure. We don't do that, but uh, but that's gone pretty much unchecked by the FDA. <clears throat> And then just this last December, the New York Times came out with this article where 12 people who had these donor stem cells injected had septic joints, which means they had a full-blown infection of their joint. So that's a major problem. So you can expect a lot more regulation for this type of product uh, to be out there. And if any of my patients ask me, I, I adamantly do not recommend donor stem cell injections for them. Okay. Uh, the other thing that's maybe more safe is bone marrow stem cells. So that's where you draw stem cells out of your own bone marrow. So it should be a lot more sterile if you do it in a safe fashion, in a clean fashion, that could work. But there's really no evidence on its efficacy or how well it works, okay? So uh, when we compare new treatments, we like to compare it to placebo because there there is a placebo effect in uh, up to 15% of any medication, right? So when you compare these things to placebo, um, a lot of uh, some of the stu- smaller studies have really not shown any difference between um, this and a, pl- and a placebo, okay? So uh, the jury is definitely still out on some of these uh, uh, high-cost, low-evidence type of injections. And then for something like the hip, and when you have a structural injury, you can imagine injecting some stem cells in there. It's not going to change the shape of your bone. Okay, So that's not going to do it for this. Uh, so for patients that have FAI, we do do a surgical treatment for that. And this is something that we can do with a small procedure called the hip arthroscopy procedure. Okay? So arthroscopy means uh, essentially keyhole surgery, which is a minimally invasive procedure where we look inside of the hip with a camera and also small, uh, small incisions like about the size of my pinky tip where we can go in there with instruments and do all the surgery through that. So knee arthroscopy was the first thing to come about in the 90s, uh, and that's become really popular. And then shoulder arthroscopy after that in the early 2000s. And then we've been doing hip arthroscopy on a larger scale in the U.S. probably in the last 10 years or so. Uh, And and that's really grown a lot in terms of uh, a a viable procedure due to all the advanced surgical uh, uh, equipment and instruments that we have that allow us to do this, okay? And recently, last month, they did a randomized controlled trial in the UK looking at surgery versus physical therapy for patients with FAI. So patients came in and they got a card, and with the cards that you're going to do physical therapy first, they did that, or the cards that you're going to do surgery, they did that. And then they found that the patients who had surgery uh, were likely to do better than the ones that had physical therapy. So not to say that physical therapy doesn't work, you can still have improvement from it, but it's possible that doing surgery uh, can give you better improvement. Okay, So that, that's um, 
the first trial of that type that I've seen, it's really hard to randomize people uh, into surgery versus not surgery. Usually if you want surgery, you know you want surgery. You don't just flip a coin and say, hey, I may or may not do it. Uh, so, so kudos to them for having a, a large recruitment, a lot of patients, and doing a good study uh, with high-level evidence. But even before this study came out, in the U.S., the rate of hip arthroscopy surgery uh, really started growing. So we looked at a study of using our database uh, insurance payment plans, and we saw that uh, the the rate of hip arthroscopy surgeries in the U.S. just between 07 and 2011 uh, essentially tripled in that time in the, in four years. Okay, and then the procedures that were most popular were ones treating FAI. So those are the ones for femoroplasty, which is taking off the cam lesion, shaving down the bone spur on the femur side, acetabuloplasty, which is shaving down the pincer lesion on the socket side, and then labral repair, so uh, repairing and reattaching the torn labrum. Okay, So these are some of the things that I specialize in in my practice. And just to show you guys, this is uh, some of the surgery that we do. So this is uh, an arthroscopy looking inside of the hip. Here I've got a burr inside of the hip, and you can see the labrum uh, is at the bottom here. And right above it, this is the acetabulum or the socket. So this burr is like a uh, high-speed revolving instrument, like what the dentist uses almost. Uh, And using this, we can shave off the bone. So here I'm shaving off the pincer lesion, which is the bone spur sticking up behind the labrum here that's pinching down on it. And then we're, and we're doing this all arthroscopically so we can record it. Um, and then uh, what that looks like on x-ray is uh, before surgery, you'll have a pincer lesion, which is kind of this edge of bone that's sticking out here. And then after surgery, you only see one line instead of two lines there. So we've re- removed that extra bone that's uh, gripping the hip too, too tightly. And then uh, on the other side of the surgery, this is doing a femoroplasty, which is removing the cam lesion, so the bone spur on the femoral side. And we basically uh, just do the same thing on that one uh, uh, with the same instrument and slowly, piece by piece, uh, shave down that big bone spur and then make it a nice flat uh, surface where it doesn't impinge and then test it through a range of motion to make sure that there's no bone rubbing on the labrum or the cartilage or anything like that. Uh, when we finish, okay? So for something like that, you'll see x-rays like the one on the left before surgery where you've got this big uh, big bump here. That's the big cam lesion and a pincer lesion, this big piece of bone right there. And then afterwards, you can see the shape has been restored and the concavity or the curvature has been restored. So we remove this big piece of cam lesion and then we remove that big uh, pincer lesion as well to uh, decrease the amount of uh, pressure. You can see just on this x-ray, it's almost bone touching bone right there whenever this patient flexes the hip. But now after the surgery, they're actually flexing it more with, with good space to spare, okay? So these are all corrections that we can do with uh, arthroscopic procedures, which have a very, very low complication rate. So compared to a big open procedure, like an osteotomy, doing a scope complication rates are less than 1% for, 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 for even minor complications. Okay? And then here we're doing uh, labral repair. So here um, I'm showing uh, a demonstration of us drilling uh, uh, into the socket and then putting a, a suture anchor in. And then from that suture anchor, we uh, use that suture to wrap it around the labral tear here. And then, we'll, and then we'll tie it together, and that'll bring the labrum back onto the bone where it tore from. Okay? So we're, we're repairing all of this uh, arthroscopically, just um, 
through those minimally invasive uh, incisions. So here I'm tying the knot down, and then we'll put another one next to it. So two anchors here, and then the labrum's nice and stable there and repaired for the patient. Okay. So um, when we do these studies, what exactly happens? Uh, sorry, when we do these procedures, what are the outcomes? So because hip arthroscopy surgery is rel a relatively newer procedure, most of the data is on short follow-up, which is two years or so, uh, two years or less. And pretty much all the studies uh, we've done uh, following patients for two years after their surgery show very, very good results. There's some limited studies that have five-year outcomes uh, from a few uh, surgeons that have been doing it for uh, longer. And then even fewer surgeons that actually have uh, uh, 10-year outcomes on their patients. But in terms of two, five, and 10-year outcomes, those have all been very good so far. But we don't have 20-year outcomes. We don't have 30 or 40 or 50-year outcomes. So we don't know what happens down the road. And the question is if whether doing this surgery can, in fact, slow down arthritis or prevent arthritis progression. Okay, but uh, uh, when we measure our results here at UCSF, looking at our sample of patients, uh, which we have a one-year and two-year follow-up on a, about 120 patients, uh, by and large, they do very well. So when people ask me, what's the success rate of the surgery? So in terms of uh, returning to sports and having significant improvement uh, for sports, 96% of people achieve that after within two years. In terms of improvement in quality of life, 94% have significant improvement. And then decreasing significant decreases in pain, 85%. So those are all pretty good numbers um, uh, for us in, in terms of surgery outcomes. And then when we look at it in our specialized population of athletes, like professional athletes, so people uh, with two-year follow-up, for the most part, after the surgery, they do very well in terms of returning to their sports, okay? Uh, some of them, uh, uh, 15 athletes for 10 years, 87% success rate. That's still very good. And then... Um, <coughs> 96% of a big cohort of almost 2,000 patients uh, return to sports uh, in a systematic review, which is kind of combining uh, data from multiple studies. So for, for athletes and for sports, this does very well for getting people back to play. Okay? And then some of the things we know that make this a better study include uh, what we do during the surgery. So we know that if we were to repair the labrum, patients do a lot better than if we just remove or debride the labrum. So when we used to first do this study, we would just trim the labrum and debride it. Uh, and as you can imagine, removing all of that tissue is not it's not a great thing because it's there for a reason. Uh, so now that we can remove, re, uh, now that we can repair the labrum and reattach it, we've been seeing better results from that procedure. And then another thing we look at is outcomes based on age. Okay, so most most of the surgery is done for skeletally mature patients, which are people from in their 20s to 30s, and these are the ones we have the most data on, and at least 85 six, uh, percent success rate in these patients. In the patients that are a little bit older, 30 to 49 years old, uh, they're still pretty good, but the younger you are, the better you do. And then for like the teenagers and the adolescents, there's there hasn't been a big cohort of that, but some of the early uh, smaller series show very good outcomes in that group. The patients that ha don't have a great outcome are the older patients over 50 years old, okay? So when we look at that, based on age group, the, the lighter uh, boxes are the older patients, and then their outcome scores decrease with age, okay? And then... Um, 
What's more specific, well, so uh, uh, multiple studies have looked at this phenomenon. So if you're over age 50, you're more likely to fail the surgery and have to have another operation. You're more likely to have uh, a complication and lower improvement in terms of patient outcomes. And then multiple studies have, have looked at this all demonstrating the same thing. We looked at our study here, and we saw uh, using a large database of patients in the U.S. that for patients over 50 years old, within two years of their hip arthroscopy surgery, almost 20% of them went on to have a hip replacement. So that's not a great result. So if you need a, a second replacement surgery within two years of your scope, you probably shouldn't have gotten that scope in the first place. Okay, So, uh, so we looked at that stratifying by age group. And then uh, in the setting of, uh, and then more specifically, more than just age, it's how much arthritis patients have. Okay, so the older you are, the more likely you are to have arthritis. And then the more arthritis you have, the worse your outcomes are. So we saw that for patients that have very limited joint space, less than two millimeters, there's almost an 80% conversion to hip replacement after you scope them. So those are just, uh, sometimes you do more damage than good by trying to scope a patient with arthritis, and it just doesn't work, okay? So so basically, older patients, especially ones with arthritis, are ones that we don't want to target for this. And the question is, can we uh, prevent arthritis in the people that don't have it yet uh, uh, by doing an early surgery like a hip scope for FAI. Does treatment of FAI and labral tears prevent arthritis? There's been almost no data looking at this. There, uh, last year, one study came out of Canada with 10 patients uh, with two-year follow-up, and using some advanced imaging, they saw that in these 10 patients, after they treated them with the CAM uh, surgery, uh, the cartilage health improved uh, afterwards. So that would be an early indicator of p- perhaps being able to protect the cartilage by removing the cam lesion. Intuitively, it makes sense because if you've got a bone spur that's rubbing on things, that's causing the damage. It, once you remove the bone spur, that damage should stop. We just don't have big evidence to prove that yet. So I don't try to proclaim to my patients that doing this scope surgery is going to prevent your arthritis in the future. But that's definitely something we're studying very, very hard, looking very closely at. So here we are uh, in the middle of finishing our trial, looking at the same uh, question. Does FAI surgery prevent arthritis? So we're using advanced imaging studies, like some of the research I showed you guys earlier with our radiology group. Uh, And we got a grant looking at this. uh, And we're waiting for our last patients to come through next month to look at this after surgery to test their cartilage health. We got about 35 patients in it. I did uh, arthroscopic surgery on all of them, and then we're going to see after surgery if it if it helped the cartilage health and maybe give us a glimpse of it. It could potentially uh, be something that prevents arthritis in the future. Okay. So, uh, in conclusion, uh, hip preservation or preservation of hip articular cartilage is very difficult. Okay, uh, treatment of end stage arthritis is with the, with hip replacement surgery. So, when you have bone on bone, there's no better uh, procedure than a hip replacement. It actually works very very well for that. Okay, however, in the young active population, uh, FAI and hip dysplasia are significant risk factors for early arthritis. And we try to be conservative with our treatment for these. Uh, And then uh, some forms of the injections have very uh, uh, little evidence behind them. So be careful what what things you're testing out. 
And then if we were to do surgery on patients, especially hip arthroscopy, there is a high clinical improvement with return to sports for patients that have hip impingement but no arthritis. Uh, but it is uncertain if doing hip arthroscopy can prevent arthritis progression. Okay. So those are kind of the main takeaway points from this talk. Uh, these are my references. And then if there's any questions, please feel free to, to ask at this point. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, so that's kind of um, uh, the research that I'm looking at, where uh, I wanted, where we want to try to prove that once we remove the bone spur that's causing the impingement, that that can uh, potentially slow down the progression of arthritis, but we don't know for sure yet. That's why it's, I say it's uncertain whether that surgery is, uh, changes the natural uh, progression of arthritis. Usually by the time we detect it, you're, they've had it for a while because it develops during skeletal maturity. So by the time you're done growing at age 18, you have it. But you don't usually feel it until later on, uh, decades later. Yeah, so that's a great question. So we don't know exactly how, but we do know from those studies that it's associated with probably overuse sports during skeletal maturity. So if your kids are playing sports year-round between the ages of 12 and 18, that's a high risk factor. So make sure there's an off-season. Make sure they're doing different sports, not just one sport. I don't have data for that yet, but that's something that our uh, American Orthopedic Society for Sports Medicine is looking very closely at. Single sport uh, focused uh, um, athletes uh, um, have a lot higher risk for various type of injuries. So kids that play different sports are generally, um, uh, it's, it's more recommended for that. Okay. So be, because uh, cam and pincers develop at a younger age, usually it's not quite related to osteoporosis. Okay? It's more related to uh, uh, some genetic components of, of how your hip develops. So pincer lesions where the socket's too deep, that's probably a little bit more genetic, whereas cam lesions are probably more acquired because the cam lesion develops where your growth plate is. So if you're, uh, while you're growing, if, you're, if you do some kind of micro damage to your growth plate, that may be one reason why that forms. And probably for some reason men, I don't know if it's like the, the anatomy, the shape of the hip, the, the, the sports that they're playing that cause them to be more at risk for it, but, but there is a high risk for that in, in men. Okay. Yeah, so cartilage uh, is typically pretty uh, inert. So once it's formed, it doesn't really regenerate itself very much. Okay, uh, Overuse could be related to wearing down the cartilage. And then once the cartilage is worn down, that's, that's it. Um, so different things can cause the cartilage to wear down, not just overuse, but uh, uh, various different conditions. But uh, regardless of what causes cartilage damage, once it's gone, it's gone for the most part. So, uh, so uh, for for young athletes, you mean like year round? I, I didn't yeah. So for so f that's more related to uh, FAI and development of abnormal bone spurs. That's like if you do too much repetitive sports, uh, and that's still a theory as well. We don't know exactly why. With respect to cartilage itself and wearing down a cartilage. Uh, that relationship is also not well established. So there are people who are marathon runners who just destroy their bodies theoretically but have pristine joints. And there are other ones who are like, oh, I, I, ran, I run you know, a mile every other week and their joints are completely beat up. So we're not sure exactly uh, what that relationship is. Okay, yeah. 
Okay, good question. So the first question is, if you have a tight joint, like a, a tight hip for a while, does that mean you're more likely to develop arthritis? Not always, okay? Uh, what I would say to that is if you've had tight joints that are very tight and it's changing, it's getting tighter, it's getting worse, you're losing range of motion, uh, you need to get that checked out, okay? Because you don't always feel pain from that, but if you're losing range of motion and losing mobility... That could be a sign that there's arthritis that's developing. But if you've always had kind of limited mobility, you could just have like a stiff, stiff joint or, or not very mobile, tight hamstrings, stuff like that. As long as it's not changing and it's not painful, then that doesn't necessarily mean, it, uh, uh, mean it's leading to anything else. Uh, second part of that is if you have arthritis in another joint, like the knee, does that lead you to uh, get arthritis in the hip? Is that correct? Yeah, so uh, yes and no also for that. So, uh, so if you have uh, arthritis in the knee, you may be at risk for having arthritis in another major joint like your hip because there could be a genetic component to why you have arthritis in the knee in the first place. And if there is a genetic component, then you're likely to have arthritis in your other knee as well and then in your hips as well, even your shoulders. Uh, kinematically, if you have one bad joint and you're overstressing, overcompensating with the other ones and overloading them, you, you may do some damage to it, but it's not a direct relationship where, hey, you, you put too much force, you're limping too much, and that equals arthritis. There's, a, there's hundreds of factors that go into why uh, cartilage breaks down over time. And, and if, I, if we could kind of tease out exactly what was the highest, that, you know, that would be a game changer. But, but it's just, there's so many things going on. That's why it's so hard for us to kind of uh, pinpoint it and stop it. Yeah, so the uh, question is, are there other joints that have these uh, bone spurs or growth, uh, uh, growth injuries? Uh, the hip is the most prevalent with FAI because it's such a tight joint. So when it's such a tight joint and there's so much force uh, exerted through it, if you have just a little bit of an abnormal increased friction over the years, every time you sit, every time you get up from a chair, you're rubbing, rubbing, rubbing. That's what leads to that cartilage and labrum injury. If you have it in the shoulder, you can compensate for that a lot better. You have a lot more range of motion. Uh, you, you really don't feel it as much. So for the most part, this type of impingement injury is a lot more uh, symptomatic and more predominant in the hip joint. Okay. Great question. So does uh, low-impact or non-weight-bearing movement help keep the cartilage healthy? Uh, I, uh, I'm inclined to say yes, okay? And most people will, most doctors will say yes, but there's not hard evidence for that, okay? But I do recommend low-impact exercises for people that have early joint injuries or early joint degeneration, like swimming, biking, elliptical, yoga. Those things are, in general, more um, theoretically less, uh, less harmful for the joint than heavy loading with, like, running and jumping kind of things. Yep. That's a trillion-dollar question, yeah. So is there any research looking at artificial cartilage replacement? Yes. A lot of companies are trying to do that. A lot of uh, uh, researchers are trying to engineer that with things like stem cells or synthetic cartilage. Uh, we have not been able to get close to that. Okay. Sometimes we're, uh, in the knee, we can uh, basically uh, uh, rob Peter to pay Paul, sort of, by taking a cartilage plug from another area that you don't need it that's not really weight-bearing and put it in an area that's weight-bearing that you really need to. So you could take cartilage plugs. You could do donor cartilage plugs in the knee. In the hip, that hasn't worked very well. Okay. And, and in terms of a whole-scale, full-joint cartilage, and nothing, nothing we have has been close for that. 
Yep, good question. Yes. So question is, are hip replacements lasting longer with better material science? Yes. So there's uh, different plastics, uh, stiffer plastics, plastics inf infused with different things like vitamin E, things like that have all made uh, uh, hip replacements stronger and more durable. And then there's also different components, not just metal and plastic, but also ceramic, which is, uh, which is also uh, stronger and theoretically longer lasting. There's always a trade-off. The strong longer the material, the more brittle it is. So then you can actually crack your hip replacement if it's ceramic versus wear it down if it's, if it's a softer metal. Okay. But that is a, a lot of uh, the research that, that we're doing. One of our other doctors, Dr. Jeff Berry, who's one of our uh, joint replacement specialists, will give you guys a good lecture about that coming up. Sure. Yeah, good question. Question is, first, is there anything nutritionally to help cartilage? And then number two, anything to stimulate cartilage uh, growth? So uh, nutritionally, uh, nothing uh, has panned out in terms of uh, large uh, clinical evidence for it. There was a big uproar about supplements like glucosamine, hyaluronic acid as a supplement, because those are some of the materials we find in our joint lubricating fluids. So it's been theorized that uh, taking supplements for those can help uh, help with your joint, help decrease joint pain, or help preserve the joint. <clears throat> Randomized controls trials have shown that that's not uh, necessarily more um, beneficial than placebo. Um, however, it has been shown that it is not harmful, okay? So, so, right, right, okay? And there are people that take it and do very well from it, okay? And just to be the devil's advocate, placebo medicine is still medicine. So there's 15%, there's 15 of people that get a lot better from placebo. So there are certain things that work very well. Okay? But it's not something that I would say. If, if it really worked and panned out, we would, there would be like an FDA broadcast, everyone go buy some right now. Right? Yeah. And to stimulate cartilage growth, no, no there, there really hasn't been anything to, that we can um, uh, use um, in patients for that yet. Great question. So, yeah, so the question was for osteoporosis, weight-bearing exercise is recommended, but uh, for joint preservation, uh, low impact uh, is recommended. So, yeah, so ideally both. So weight-bearing doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean high impact, right? So you could do weight-bearing exercises like elliptical or uh, walking, but not high impact like you know, vigorous jumping or running. So something in between. Uh, uh, but the thing is, usually when you, well, uh, I don't want to make a broad statement, but usually when you have osteoporosis, um, um, it's a different type of injury than osteoarthritis. People with osteoarthritis, the joints are actually pretty sclerotic, which means they're really hard and they're not, the bone's actually not soft. So they're, they're, they're not mutually exclusive, but, but they're not always kind of uh, coinciding with each other. For anti-inflammatory medications, yeah. So if you're taking a blood thinner, then you, uh, or if you have kidney problems or, or heartburn or digestive problems, you don't want to take things like ibuprofen or Aleve, okay? <clears throat> you uh, probably want to take Tylenol, which is still an anti-inflammatory. It works by a different mechanism, and it might not be as effective as Advil or, or Aleve, but that would probably be the safest to take when you're on a, a blood thinner. Um, and then for something like that, if you really can't take medications, then looking at cortisone injections, more specifically at the joint, might be an effective option, alternative option for that. Okay. All right. Thanks, everybody. So that's all the time we have. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.